Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what's in the glass. We dig a little deeper into the stories, the culture, the history, and heritage when it comes to wine. I'm Julie Glenn. And let's not forget, we drink a little along the way, too. I'm Gina Birch. You know, September... 15th through October 15th is Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States. And during this time, Great Minds podcast is going to step back or dive in or take a look at the impact Hispanic winemakers and vineyard managers and workers have made on the wine business as a whole. And today, Bibiana Gonzalez-Rave joins us. She is the owner and winemaker of Alma de Catlea in Napa, uh, bragging a little bit about Bibiana. First of all, she's one awesome woman, but she was also named one of the wine enthusiasts' uh, first 40 Under 40 America's Taste Makers. That was in 2014. And then the next year in 2015 was uh, San Francisco Chronicles pick for Winemaker of the Year. Hi, Bibiana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Gina and Judy. How are you? And wow, what cred. Huh? I know, right? Winemaker of the year. That's awesome. So you grew up in Colombia, though. That's a country. Do they have much of a wine industry there? <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't. You know, this is probably the most uh, uh, interesting part of my winemaking career is I definitely grew up in a country that does not produce any wine, did not have any wine culture at the time. So we are talking about a long time ago. <laughs> I'm a little bit old here. Um, and I just got fascinated about wine since I was 14 years old. But most important, I was really fascinated about the idea of making wine, not just consuming wine. I was too young to really be dreaming about drinking a bottle of wine. <laughs> but uh, definitely the making of of the product was something that fascinated me growing up in actually Medellin, Colombia, of all cities. Uh, we are not pretty famous around the world, not for wine. Yes, <laughs> for another crop. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So what happened when you were 14 that made you aware of wine and made you interested in the process of making it? So I think it was a combination of two things. Uh, first, it was kind of being aware when we were going out for a special dinner that there was such a product called wine that was uh, used historically uh, to be part of the dinner table. And my parents were middle class growing up uh, in Colombia, so it's not like we had like all of these influence of European wines. It's not like they were drinking wine, but I would see a bottle here and there at the restaurants, and I was just really curious about what was wine, and then I just started reading more about it. And I think I gravitated to wine for the same reasons, that everybody loves drinking wine. And it's sort of this mystery of a product that really comes from agriculture. It's a product that is farmed. It's a fruit that then is really transformed into a pretty magical uh, drinking product that can really tell you so much about a single place, a time in, in the history of life, and also the differences of varietals, right? So that's why we all have different favorites between white and red wines, 
and varietals in those two different type of, of wines. You know, and instead of staying in somewhere in South America or Latin America to study enology, you went to the mothership. You just said, forget it, I'm going to France, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. You know, I was very fortunate. I um, I tried uh, different careers in Colombia, so I actually started chemical engineering, uh, thinking that I was going to learn about winemaking and organic chemistry, which it did happen, but only in two hours. So mm. I realized that was not going to be the best way to learn about wine. And after that, I did two years of college uh, business in Colombia, also trying to maybe, you know, be the manager of a winery around the world. And after these four years of college, I decided to drop college and really wanted to just go and make wine. And my mother actually at the time just say, hey, you have been talking about this for a very long time. Why don't you really go to France and learn winemaking there? Uh, very important for my parents that I would have a degree or, of some sort. So they really wanted to be sure that I would go to college um, and graduate. So I ended up going to France. I went by myself. I didn't know any French at the time. And I just took my backpack and started visiting the schools that teach viticulture and enology in, in France. That's crazy. I mean, that, that takes some, some guts. Yeah, just to like get a backpack and go to a country where you don't know the language. But that just shows how passionate you were to learn. And you ended up in, in Bordeaux, of all places, too. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, you know, when you go to a country and, you know, so little about their culture and also so little about viticulture and winemaking, it's kind of a serendipitous uh, place where you land. And I... I studied viticulture enology in Cognac, and after that I went to the University of Bordeaux, where I graduated, um, and where I had the chance to really work for two really, really known uh, wine houses in the world of wine, which are uh, Chateaubriand and La Mission Aubriand. Mm. So I was very lucky to do my thesis with them, and I worked six months along the team. Unbelievable experience, I for bet. Sure. How did you get then to California? When I was in France, I, I was kind of dreaming of seeing how the different varietals behave on different terroirs. So I had this idea of going to Australia, South Africa, and California. Mm -hmm. And the beginning was 2004, coming to California uh, for the harvest. And after that, I went to South Africa and kept coming back to California. So I was alternating between these two countries for three years before I really settled down and, and decided to stay here in Sonoma. Did you ever think to um, go and try to grow grapes in Colombia? So that was my initial goal. I left Colombia thinking, you know, I'm going to go back to Colombia. It's going to be a great opportunity to bring all of this agricultural knowledge. Obviously, it's very different the way we do agriculture in Colombia. And I just had this ambition to like give so much back to my country, develop a really cool farm, have maybe a little school, help <laughs> the local community to get educated. So I have this huge dream of going back to Colombia and making wine there. But after, I would say, my first six months in France, I realized that uh, Colombia just really doesn't have the weather to produce exceptional fruit. So there are few vineyards and people doing things for fun, but to really make serious, great quality wines, uh, we just really don't have winter. So the vines never go dormant. 
they will be growing all year round. So you really don't have the same concentration and finesse and the phenolics and the development of, of the fruit that you need to really make aged watered wines. Yeah, same as um, same as Florida. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So yeah. as so, a, go ahead. No, so very tropical. Yes, we we are just on the line of the equator. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your brand a little bit. So you've learned to make wine. You've been all over the world, and you're in California. And it's like, okay, it's time to put my my stamp really on something. You know, making wine for for some people is one thing, but when it's yours, from the label to the varietal to the method, I mean, that's a whole other ball game. Indeed, yeah, it's a very different, uh, you know, you, you gain all of this kind of control on every single aspect of the process, but at the same time, the challenges just increase by so much because not only you want to be a great vineyard manager, a great winemaker, you then have to become a really good business person and start thinking about all the decisions that you make along the process and your responsibility with the community, your responsibility with your business, with your employees, and with everybody that is really getting involved with with your wines and also with consumers. So every single aspect of my winemaking career is even enhanced more uh, when it's your name that is on the label and when you really want to bring these a philosophy of wine to every single bottle of wine that you produce. And you have two la- labels. You have Alma Day Catlea, and then you just have the Catlea. Tell every, tell us about those two. By the way, we're taking pictures of the labels, and we'll be putting those on our social media. And they're beautiful, by the oh way. Oh, my gosh, they are. I really like the labels. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, yeah, the first label is Catlea. And for those uh, who sometimes wonder, like, how do you pronounce it? I tell, uh, especially my friends here in California and around the country, is combining the word cat and uh, Leia, like Princess Leia. So it's mm-hmm. not that difficult. Um, but that is the national flower of Colombia, which is a beautiful orchid. It's very rare. Um, it's considered kind of the queen of the orchids because it's a very large flower. And it's just very mysterious, very unique, and extremely dependent on terroir. So I really wanted to take something from my roots to really share with the world that I was born and raised in Colombia. I'm extremely proud of my upbringing, despite the fact that I mentioned it before. I certainly grew up on the worst times of Colombia and growing up in Medellin, where all public Escobar cartels were and the drugs. And, you know, it was really a, a terrible time for the country. And I still feel that who I am today has so much to do with all the adversities that we had to go through and kind of having to make choices in life very early on, on what do you stand up for? And Mm -hmm. I'm a person, I'm very transparent and I am a little bit like right or wrong. And um, I really never compromise when I am uh, focused on certain things. And I think I bring that to my label. I'm really looking to make wines that are very pure, extremely transparent, very honest wines that are really bringing to people the varietal, the terroir, and then depending on the label, the, you know, the specificities of each of those wines. So the Catrella wines are very focused on terroir-driven. It's more of a high-end price point. So really wines where I am showcasing either a single vineyard, a single clone, specific place in Sonoma County or Napa Valley. 
The Alma de Catrella wines have become a new brand for me in the last six years, where I am being able to really make wines at a more affordable price point, very, very focused on showcasing the varietals. So we have six different wines, and they are really like Alma de Catrella, Sonoma County, larger ABA, Sauvignon Blanc. So it's 100% Sauvignon Blanc, but it's still uh, fermented and made on the same way I was trained in France uh, to make wine. So we do a lot of oak uh, aging. We really focus a lot on the aromatics. I'm very sensitive to bitterness. So my wines, you will rarely or never, I don't want to say never, but uh, for people that are very sensitive to bitterness, you really would not taste that on any of my wines because I'm extremely sensitive to it and I don't like it. I'm right there with you. (laughs) Right. I do not like anything bitter. So and, this is yeah. right. and we have the Sauvignon Blanc in the glass. You just mentioned that. Ooh. So it's so, it's just fresh and lovely and wow. But then also, you know, easy like Sunday morning. You know, yeah. it's not. Um, California Sauvignon Blanc, I generally like, especially from Napa, Sonoma area. But it seems like once you get into Lake County, you're almost going to New Zealand. It gets kind of grapefruity and a little bit more of that grassy feeling that I've just never been a fan of. But that's just personal taste. Some people live for it. But uh-huh. this is my kind of Sauvignon Blanc. Thank you. Yeah, we really try to work with vineyards that are very focused on the farming and that the fruit can really ripe and develop more of the grapefruit, citrus, white peach notes, instead of just being on the grassy aspect of Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. Um, we also age it on French oak. So that will make a huge difference on the texture of the wine. So even though it's a very, very dry um, Sauvignon Blanc, we don't have any residual sugar, which I love telling my friends uh, they are even less calories than a normal Sauvignon Blanc. Mm -hmm. Um, They really are aged on a very small vessel that really gives this beautiful texture to the wine. It really rounds it out. It it really does. How much time in oak do you spend with that? So they go in oak about six to seven months. Okay. So that's quite a bit. Uh, we normally harvest late August, and we bottle in February. Okay. I, I really, it's definitely my kind of Sauvignon Blanc for sure. We're moving on to the um, Chardonnay, which is a Cuvée number no. five. Tell us about this one. Yeah, that wine. I mean, you are tasting the 2018 vintage. And I love, love that wine. I feel like it has, like, everything that we are looking on a good mm. Chardonnay, which is great minerality, very good acidity, but still, it's just so aromatic. It has floral notes. It has a little bit of citrus, uh, very honeysuckle, very fresh, with a great texture and a very long mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. And by long mouthfeel, it's kind of this sensation where the wine is still sipping on your mouth, after you drink the uh-huh. wine. Um, it's also aged on French oak, but we use much more new oak. So it can be up to 50, 60% new oak, depending on the vintage. And we use uh, larger uh, oak barrels and small oak uh, barrels. So it's definitely a wine that really brings the, the oak character to the wine, but it's not a buttery or too big or too heavy type of 
Sour yeah, cream. I don't get any of that malolactic butter thing happening. No, but I do get a little popcorn finish, just a you little do? bit. Yeah, just a little bit, but I get more of that acid. I think this is a great balance for, for the people who really love some of the richness of a Chardonnay, but uh, the other people who like the fresh, you know, one that's unoaked. This could be I think like it's a a nice... right in the middle there, yes, people please. Exactly. Because at the front, it's just, it's very fresh, fresh, bright acid. Then you get to that mid palate, and something occurs, like right there, midway down your tongue, and it just explodes. Mm. Really, I gotta say, this is gonna be good with in food. a good way. Yeah, you have the perfect weather for those two wines. Exactly. I'm a bit, uh, jealous. We have been on a little bit of a foggy, cold, gray days. <laughs> yeah. What is the production on this on the on the cuvee number five? I and I know you you're you're not doing big big productions, but I mean, is this going to be Harder for us to find or better to get direct from the winery? So it's very tiny. We only make about 300 cases. And Florida is actually one of the markets that are the most important to me because it's so close to Colombia. And there's a lot of Colombian people that go to Florida for vacation, second homes, and even for work or they live there. Where um, So we started distributing in Florida on small restaurants and few retailers um, so we definitely are in or your area for my years and naples and miami and the other you know <clears throat> the west part the east part of florida um, and then directly from the winery i really feel like when you find a producer that you really like it's always great to have just uh, you know to be on their mailing list and to know when are we releasing the wine so you can always have the wine before we sell out I love this Chardonnay. I do too. It's it's really 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 nice. I mean, it just like we said, it not to belabor it, but it really covers all of all of the bases. Before we move on to the reds, um, I'm curious about your, you, you know, your climb up the ladder to success and and having now this your own brand. As did you see? Were, were you challenged as a female or as a Latina in the winemaking, or is it just a general, I mean, could you see any of these challenges because of that? Or is it just challenging in general being in the wine business? So that is a, that's a great question. And it has like a lot of new answers for mm-hmm. sure. I would say the wine industry itself is a very challenging industry because it requires really large investments. Mm-hmm. So it really takes a lot of money to make a bottle of wine. And it's something that you need to invest invested years before you sell your first bottle of wine. So just that it's a challenge itself. It's very attached to the land. Uh, We live in California, and land in California is very expensive, as well as labor. So as an owner, uh, I feel like the challenges uh, are not related to your sex. Uh, If you're a woman or a man, it's just really a very expensive proposition. Mm. I would say as a winemaker and a viticulturist, uh, they are definitely challenges by being a woman. I've never felt challenges because being Latina. I don't know if it's because I was trained in France. Mm. So a lot of people have seen me more as a French winemaker than really a Latina winemaker. Um, even though when you see me, you obviously will know that I'm Colombian or, or Latina. And your accent uh, doesn't the, give you away at all, by the way. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Um, so I feel like being a woman uh, has been more challenging, but I also feel like uh, 
when you don't pay attention to that and you're just following your passion, you, you probably don't realize a lot of the things that maybe other people would point out to mm. me to say, like, Viviana, that, you know, that was really hard because you are a woman. <laughs> so I, I feel like I never really focused too much on it, and maybe that helped me to just keep driving for what I wanted to do. I'm extremely passionate about wine, and I just really wanted so bad to make wine and to really make extraordinary wines. And my training in France was just extremely helpful. Um uh, I don't know if you have ever been in France or been acquaintance to French education, but mm -hmm. they will never tell you that you did a good job being <laughs> no. a male or a woman. It doesn't mm -mm. matter. That is so true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so they are always like, oh, you're not too bad, Bibi. And you're like, not too bad? What do you mean not too bad? <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> uh, and they will never tell you that. So, so that, you that know, prepared so you for any naysayers, I would imagine. I think so. You know, for six years, you are hearing that all the time. And nobody's putting you on the shoulder and telling you that you are so good. Uh, so you really get used to, oh, you know, it's just hard. It's always hard. Right. <laughs> and so I'm you don't get good enough. You don't get used yeah. to all the praise. So when it's absent, right. you're, you don't notice it. I think, but what you said really is something that I've heard from a number of people who are successful. They don't notice things that could drag somebody down because um, things that could be perceived as disadvantageous, um, ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, things like that. The people that have made it and have done well kind of didn't even notice that as they were climbing. So they just yeah, so it never brought them down. And I think it's important to say that because people will be like, Vivian, I mean, there are so many moments in your career that I could point out. If somebody mm. really knows me, be like, I could point out how terrible that Ranger manager was with you. Or you remember when you were having this fight, that would have not happened if you were a, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a male or, yeah. or, you know. A straight white guy. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, like my husband, who happens to be born in California. He's also a winemaker. And he's one of the most amazing um, human beings, I know obviously I'm married to him, so I'm, I'm biased. Hey, since you brought but, him uh, up, go ahead and brag on on Jeff Jeff Pisani, right? He's uh, yes. you guys are doing a project. He's a well known winemaker as well. He does some great things, but you you two are also doing a project. He's got his, you've got yours, but you're doing some things together as well. Yes, yes. So I'm like you said, I'm married to Jeff Pisani from Pisani Vineyards and Winery. He's a winemaker. His brother Mark is the vineyard manager. Other wines are also available in Florida, and they really are very known because of the vineyard that their father planted for more than 40 years ago, uh, which is called the Pisoni Vineyard in Santa Lucia Highlands. So we both work on very different AVS, still both appellations being very coastal influenced, and we are both very focused on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in general. Um, we have been together for 13 years, married for nine, and uh, for a very long time, we we were not really being able to connect uh, during harvest time because I was always the winemaker for a different winery, and then he had always been the winemaker for his family business. So we, when we got married, we said we should really do a project together. So we we had this idea of making a only Sauvignon Blanc project. Mm -hmm. uh, we only make about 200 cases total, so it's a tiny, tiny production. But we really spend a lot of time trying to make a wine that is extremely uh, special, 
more than just a Sauvignon Blanc, just to be an age-worded white wine. So and the name of that really is, because it's a really cool, you've got like a wax top too. What is the name of that uh, that that vineyard or that label or your project again? So the wine project is called Shared Notes because we are sharing our knowledge on one specific project. And the wine that you are mentioning, the name of the wines is in French because the wines are very French style in the sense they are both fermented on 100% new French oak. Um, they are very, very dry wines, uh, very much influenced by my experience at Chateau Briand, but also Jeff's experience working at Harvest at Peter Michael, which is a very known winery in Napa Valley. And uh, we make these two wines that are really unfine and unfitter, uh, but really with, with a, a very high expectation to, to produce a great wine. Let's. Um, you mentioned the Pinot Noir, so we're on the Almade Catlea Pinot. Tell us about this. It's this is this is a lot going on in the glass for this one. If this was yeah. your if your affordable wine, I mean, I, I'd buy this all day. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. So the wine is obviously 100% Pinot Noir, and when I say obviously, but even though many times you see Pinot Noir on the label, we are allowed legally to add other varietals if you have, uh, you know, a small percentage of it. But on the Alma de Catrella wines, I really want to have 100% of the varietals that we put on the label. And my intention is that if people really want to taste pure Pinot Noir from Sonoma County, they can really get a great expression of that. Uh, we use between 7 to 15 different uh, blocks, vineyards, locations, still very coastal. So I tend to favorite Sonoma Coast, Russian River, Carneros, um, ABS for the wines that I use on this wine. And because there is so many different clones and different lots, you really have this complexity of some clones are more red fruit driven, other ones have better tannins or more tannins. So we really try to play a little bit with all of the different clones of Pinot Noir that we have available. And then, again, the wine is aged on French oak for 15 months, which is a pretty long aging. And then we bottle and release it to, to our customers. This is, it smells so floral and aromatic, and there's some spice on there to me that's like, I don't know if it's like cedar or some type of a, of a mint kind of Anytime on the end. there's Russian River Valley mm. uh, Pinot Noir, I always kind of get a little feeling of campfire for some reason. Oh, you get a little of that in there. A little bit of like, if s'mores could be a red wine, although it's not <laughs> chocolate and marshmallow, but you know that kind of toasted kind of feeling? I don't know why. Yeah, it's kind of that vanilla toasted character yeah. that comes from the oak barrels. And maybe that's where I'm getting the cedar kind of thing too. I, I'm, I'm having trouble putting my, my finger on... My words matching tongue my it. tongue. <laughs> Trying to put my taste bud on yeah. it. But i got to be honest. I have a confession to make. I've never actually had a s'more. I'm just going on really? what I imagine a s'more might taste like. Oh. <laughs> so You just smelled it. I've smelled it. Well, it's a delicious smell for sure. Yeah. This is great, It Viviana. is really nice good. Job. And this definitely is uh, punching above its price point. Mm. It does. Yeah. I mean, we really want to... Um, over the liver and again yeah. you know coming back to the question that you had before I don't know if it's because I'm a woman uh, and you are always trying to do everything 10 times uh, as good as you can mm-hmm. uh, but we really want wines that are just really like when you drink it you are like I cannot believe that this wine drinks better than 
a $50 of Pinot Noir that I drank that mm. night. It does. Uh, it, it, it drinks a lot better than a lot of $50 Pinot Noirs I've had. <laughs> it does. It's got a nice finish, too. And we're not just saying it because you're on the phone with us, too. We'd be saying this anyway. And we're not just saying it to support our sister. Right. <laughs> but Oh, thank you. This is, like, for real. I mean, it's really way better. So this retails. We've talked a lot about the price. It retails around the $30 mark, depending on where you're at, the price structures in the state where you live, the tax situation. Yeah. But um, it should be around that kind of uh, an area, right? right. Around, just under 30. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think, you know, when we're talking about the female aspect, um, and I know we're, we brought up, we're here to talk about also the Hispanic heritage as well, but there's a, there's a softer touch, I feel like, with a lot of female winemakers that gives some kind of an elegance to it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what I feel in this wine. It's a feeling. It's not just a taste to me. And maybe it's because you're anti-bitter. And, you know, the yeah, all that, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it just has this like silky, something I can't put my finger on, but it's just, it's not just a taste, it's a feel, right? I, I feel like I, I need to be more feminine and go get my nails done right now, <laughs> honestly. I, I, I do. I just, I love this wine. It's really, really good. And it's definitely better than a lot of wines of the same grape that are a lot more expensive. Before we Thank let you, you go, we need to talk about your Syrah. I know. I'm so excited you're bottling up a Syrah. Everybody's turning their back on this grape, and it's just, it's a good one. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, one of the first experiences I had in France was in the Rhone Valley at a very small appellation called Cotroti. Mm. And at the time, uh, you know, Cotroti is only about 200 hectares, uh, which is the equivalent to like 500 acres. For the entire appellation. Wow. And then you have like about 50 different producers. It's really on the hillside. It's a very difficult terrain to work with. Everything is done by hand. And one of my first experiences was there. And I, I worked there in the vineyards. And I worked there at the wineries. And it was just really amazing. Uh, their dedication to Syrah is just, it's not even just the varietal. It's just how they, they treat their Syrahs like you would treat an avocado, right? So mm-hmm. it's just such an important varietal. And I learned so much about it. I'm super passionate about Syrah. I love old Syrahs. Like you can drink a 20, 30 years old Syrah and be like so intrigued by the complexity and the yacht and, and all the different nuances. So I really wanted to purposely choose a very small Vineyard, very single driven. It's actually quite an expensive wine for Syrah in general. Uh, we were talking about retail price, but that is a wine that retails for $70 a bottle. I use only new oak. It's uh, five years air dry oak. So it's actually probably my most expensive French oak barrels. And the wine is just fermented on tanks for a very long time where the tannins are really softened just through the fermentation and the post-fermentation. So when you were talking about the elegance and the finesse and the mouthfeel for my wines, it really has a lot to do with the tannins and the phenolic ripeness of the fruit. So I'm really focused on that. I really work very close with my vineyard managers or the vineyards where I purchase fruit to really bring the vines to their perfect balance and to really obtain just really exceptional fruit. Wow, this, I just could smell it all day, first of all. It's just got great aromatics. and Well, it's cool because it's called The Initiation, and it's yeah. taken me back to when I first fell in love with the Syrah grape and um, with red wine in general. It just takes you back to like, oh, God, I remember why I liked red wine. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because we live in 100 degree heat right now. And <laughs> the only thing I can even stand without letting myself on fire is white wine. <laughs> but I'm in air conditioning, so I can deal with it. But this is just like, oh, yes, this is what red wine's about. You know, sometimes you sort of forget. Yeah, that's got a, that's got some really nice red fruit in the, in the back and the finish, too. That's just, again, it's nice and smooth and, and wonderful. And, and all the bacony on the nose, actually. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's a wine that really will age really well. Like, I would recommend that you enjoy one or two glasses today, but <laughs> leave a little bit on the bottle for tomorrow or in five days to really see, like, how much the wine is going to open up and change and to continue changing on your glass, but also in an open bottle. Um, is something that is really important to me. That's one of the cool, geeky things about wine that I think those of us who really like it appreciate, something that can last and linger over a couple days, if you're patient enough to leave it, that is. Yeah, no no kidding. Luckily, my husband doesn't hear that thing would be gone already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. Bibiana, thank you so much for being with us. We could just talk to you all day. I have so many other questions, but I know we're we're running out of time here. But I got to tell you, it was so great talking with you. Thank you. Same here. I can't wait to meet you in person. Maybe once this pandemic uh, let us travel back to the East Coast, it would be great that we just share uh, a glass of wine or maybe a, a cup of coffee. Absolutely. We get out to California as often as we can, so we'll be looking you up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. All righty. Viviana Gonzalez-Rave, again, is the owner and winemaker for Almade Catlea in California, and uh, we enjoy talking to her in our ongoing celebration of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Callaghan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Mannon. To get in touch, check greatminds.org or call the Grape Line and ask a wine question. We will address it on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening.